1: Right. my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Craig Camp. We're at the Troon Tasting Room in McMinnville, January 20th, 2022. Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question, biggest one to get us started, is why wine? Ah, uh,
2: The easy question. Uh, well, uh, when I was in, in college, I ended up spending a, uh, a semester studying, as that's what they called it anyway at that time, uh, uh, in Austria, and then I spent the, the summer after that uh, bumping around uh, Europe. And uh, so when I got to France, I said, well, I should try some wine, because it wasn't anything that I grew up with. And uh, so I went to buy wine, and that's that was in the days of, of hippies and things like that. So buy a bottle of wine, go to the Eiffel Tower and share meals and things like that. So after that period I came back to the United States feeling extremely sophisticated (laughs) and then went to a wine shop and realized I didn't know how to buy a bottle of wine. So I bought uh, the Signet Book of Wine and that really led me down this course. I ended up teaching uh, at um, a local community college and then I... um, uh, we started an a importer-distributor in Chicago in 1979, and we were the first to really start importing small-domain wines. So we started with uh, France, and that's two of my most important mentors, uh, Becky Wasserman, who unfortunately just passed away, a uh, longtime friend, and Christopher Connaughton. Who was her partner? They were partners at that time, so we began importing all these small estates, not just from Burgundy, but from all over Southern France, mm-hmm. and um, and then um, we started expanding. So we went to Italy and started doing the same thing, and and there I connected with Neil Empson, another one of my mentors, and um, at that time they were a very small company, not like their but a big company now, but uh, uh, it was a very small company working with very small estates. Angelo Gaia, for instance, was, was one of them. I remember picking Angelo up at the airport and going around to retail stores trying to get them to buy his wine, you know, people tasting them out of little plastic cups. And I think they were probably selling for about $20 a bottle then, and people saying, oh, that's too expensive for Italian wine. <laughs> and, then, and then we, we just expanded out to California and Oregon um so we, we were working with spotswood Schaefer, calera when they were new wineries and then did the same thing up here first connecting with ken wright when he was at panther creek and then following him to his own uh winery after that at keegan panther creek and we started with domain serene and, and lang and uh, had a, a a pretty extensive oregon portfolio which led me out here uh, uh, in the in the 80s and it was very different in those days as you might might expect <laughs> uh, I remember uh, being so uh, uh, impressed with Dundee you know I hear all about Dundee and the Dundee Hills and and, and Dundee was not what I expected after traveling to, to Europe and everything for years so we built up this really extensive portfolio and during that time I spent a lot of time going to wineries during harvest various parts of the world and um, then after 20 years, we sold that company. My partner wanted to get out. And and I didn't have enough money to buy it out because it had gotten quite successful by then. And it was uh, purchased by uh, Paterno. <laughs> uh, I had a five-year contract with uh, Paterno. And uh, when that contract was up, the day after, I left for Italy for three years. <laughs> and during that time, I was fortunate enough to, because of my contacts to be able to, to uh, spent a lot of time in the cellars, particularly in Barolo and Barbaresco. And uh, uh, that's really where I got the fundamentals of my in my winemaking philosophies and things like that. Because it was a really interesting period because this was when, when uh, Piemonte was uh, in all this uproar. There were the ultra-modern producers, and there were the, uh, the traditional producers, and now the th- things have kind of sorted themselves out. But in those days, it was a big deal. So I got to see everything from the most modern. Techniques to the the most uh, traditional techniques and um, So after I'd been uh, in Italy for three years the opportunity came to come back to Oregon and That was when Chateau Benoit was uh, transforming to Adamie and so that was my project so I was fortunate enough to have to sell the end of the Benoit (laughs) Wines that were left and then and then create the the new (laughs) the new new brand and uh, uh, so I brought in Thomas Hausman and, and all those people. Mm-hmm. And Thomas, of course, is now off in Michigan. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so it was that was an exciting time. But then I, you know, you get the proverbial offer you can't refuse, and that took me down to Napa Valley for ten years, where I was at uh, Cornerstone Cellars. We specialized in Howell uh, Mountain Cabernet Sauvignon, and I was always inspired in Napa, particularly by uh, Kathy Corison. And so I had visions of making that kind of wine, which I found it, it was very difficult because we were buying grapes. You know, the idea of buying a vineyard is not very practical. And So you know, after struggling with that and trying to achieve this style and, and, and making progress uh, but the prices kept going up in the fruit we were buying, you know, because we the contracts were based on uh, Napa Valley average. Mm-hmm. And so it was a certain percent over that that kept going up and going up and going up. And it got to be about $14,000 a case, a case, excuse me, we probably should sell it for that, <laughs> $14,000 a ton. And, and uh, then, then, then the, the owner of that vineyard sold it and the new owner came to me and, and said the new price was 21000 and I said, this is not fun. I'm not having fun anymore. And that really led me to go back to Oregon and, and, and uh, led me to uh, True and Vineyard. Uh, when I was at Annamie, I was buying fruit, a Syrah and Vignet down in the Rogue Valley. And I've always been really interested uh, in the area. And I think after years of working with Pinot Noir and Cabernet, I really wanted to go go on to a different direction. And also in my early importing days, the Southern Rhone and the Southern French varieties, the Southwest were some were of my most uh, favorite wines. And so that really, just to have that opportunity to go into a more open environment mm-hmm. um, was really attractive to me. Mm-hmm. And also the opportunity to, to take a property uh, and, and basically um, bring it back to health, you know, a, a property that had great potential. But had uh, uh, the vineyards were not in the best condition at that point, and and then you know reaching so that's where we let us down the path of biodynamics, and mm-hmm. and and making wine in Applegate Valley really gives you the opportunity to do things you could do nowhere else. You know, when when something costs you twenty thousand dollars a ton, you don't experiment with it. But we're, we're fortunate now that we're able to to do what we want to do and and and, and take some risks mm-hmm. and really do something different and. We've been able to put together an exceptional uh, winemaking team. Uh, Nate Wall mm-hmm. is our winemaker. And uh, Garrett Long uh, is, is our director of agriculture. And the level of experience that they have and the vision that, that we have and the, and the ability to work as a team has really uh, taken troon from um, uh, you know vines that were really diseased and unhealthy. And we've been able to see dramatic improvement uh, we also realized we had to replant the entire vineyard, but that's <laughs> that's another bit of bit of the project. So um, Truyn, of course, is an historic vineyard, you know, going back to Dick Truyn in 1972, and it sort of had like most things that have been around for a long time. It was in, uh, several owners uh, um, and several generations working within that context. So. Um, uh, I don't know if they'd ever really gotten focused on what they wanted to do. They did a lot of things. There mm-hmm. were so many grape varieties that were planted and, and that it was really. But I, I, you know, again, that's normal in a, in, a, in a emerging region. You're going to experiment. Mm-hmm. You're going to see vineyards like that that just have all sorts of different uh, varieties, different uh, spacing in the vineyard, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's been. It's been. A, you know, it's really been a, a rewarding experience. But you, the whole thing is is around. Uh, um, building that team that can then uh, achieve the goal. You've got to have the raw materials obviously. I, the vineyard was obviously had great potential um, but by by applying this, these new strategies and farming strategies and, and professional talent we've been able to really uh, uh, recreate, I call it a complete rebirth, I think there are uh, three of us that were here in 2016 before the current owners came in. The current owners are uh, uh, Dr. Brian and Denise White. Uh, They live in Arlington, Texas, and go back and forth. And they have been, obviously this was a significant investment, uh, uh, and and they have been, you know, totally committed to this, this recreation of this vineyard and this brand. And we decided to keep the name Troon because of the historical value and out of respect to Dick Trueen who planted the, the, the vines on the farm in the first place, because uh, who knows there would even be vines there if, if he hadn't done that. So uh, uh, we wanted to give a nod to history, even though we were having this, this total mm-hmm. regeneration of concept and, yeah. and, and, and vineyard and wines, I mean, we're, t- we're doing totally different.
1: Um, there's nothing the same except three of us. <laughs> <laughs> three of you in the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to come back to Trune in a second. I want to back up for a second. You mentioned kind of the. Kind of going from just trying a little bit of wine to realizing that you didn't really know anything about wine when you came back Tell me about the process of learning wine for yourself as a as a consumer as it as a, as you educated yourself and From taking from that step into getting into distribution at what point? Did you feel educated enough to, to start a business like that?
2: Well, I, I, when I got out of school I was a journalist. That's what I did in, when I was uh, in college That's what I studied and um, I get, you know, it's like most things. Uh, uh, it wasn't something that occurred to me. I did not grow up around wine at all. I grew up in northern Illinois on the Wisconsin border. Uh, uh, most of my family was either just off the farm or still on the farm. And uh, wine did not exist, you know, it was basically Pabst and uh, Manhattan's were the <laughs> alcohol beverages of choice. and. and I guess it was that experience, it was certainly that experience of going to Europe and spending time there and, and tase, tasting this sensational food and these wonderful wines, and, and then buying that book, I, you, know, I, you know, some things just speak to you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, and they re- lead you down this, the, the, the path, and it was so I just basically consumed every book that I could find, mm-hmm. and, and, and then I started writing a wine column for the newspaper I was working for. And then I met uh, Sam Lovett, uh, who ended up being my partner at Direct Import Wine Company in Chicago. And uh, that was in late 79. And, it, you know, things being, you know, that was, it was a right place, right time sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'd really gotten the bug badly. <laughs> and I had two friends that were in, in the wine business. And so we created a wine tasting group by that time. And, And those were the good old days. So we could, we could, uh, uh, we would get together once a year and and taste all the Bordeaux first Grows, And I think it cost us maybe 50 bucks a piece, you know. (laughs) But those days, those days are long gone. So, I mean, obviously, you know, it's like mostly it turned from uh, avocation into a vocation. So I made the leap. But I was starting a company. At that point, we didn't really have any money, uh, but we we were able to. There was a, a company called Chicago Wine Company, and they wanted containers cleared, and so we financed the business by clearing containers for them, and then making the connection with Becky and Christopher, and and, and it, like many things that grew mm-hmm. over the years. But because no one was doing it, it and it was just the time that. Uh, the, the restaurant scene was really exploding with new styles of restaurants, instead of so just the old traditional steakhouses and things like that. You know, there was the explosion of uh, fine Italian dining that had really, hadn't really existed before. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, right place, right time, and the right desire, I guess, all mixed together, uh, uh, made it work. I don't You could never do that now. I mean, there's, there's dozens of distributors in every market kind of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm
1: so with that with the idea to distribute and to import and distribute was it fully fledged when you started or did you were you kind of figuring it out as you went along
2: oh we were definitely figuring it out as we went along (laughs) yeah yeah we definitely were figuring it out as we went along but again you know i think the the market was much more forgiving at that time there weren't that many experts around most of the wine that was sold was sold by spirits companies Mm -hmm. so you know it just made uh uh uh, we were so different because we came in from the wine side of things. Mm-hmm. I, think I still remember going. I went to the, my first sales meeting at Union Liquor Company, and the guy in front of me had uh, uh, put on a bozo outfit. <laughs> everything. and started throwing twenty dollar bills <laughs> up to the salesman who mm-hmm. were out selling things. So, and, and I had like memorized everything about this cognac I was going to talk about, <laughs> and. Uh, 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 I was not as exciting as he was. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, again, those days are gone.
1: When it came to choosing wines or or wineries to to distribute, what what was it you were looking for? How did you kind of target what you wanted to, to import and sell?
2: Well, it, it, you know, I guess it was from the studying that I got focused on. I think the European concept was what really appealed to me. I mean, there weren't that many good uh, American wines at that point. You know, Napa was emerging. Uh, the Judgment of Paris was uh, just was a few years mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. and things like that. So we didn't really look that way. We looked towards that European model, and for for those. Uh, uh, so you thought of okay, this is an estate. It's a vineyard, everything. So. Mm-hmm.
1: So you started with France, and you said you kind of you mentioned kind of smaller, kind of more off the beaten path. So how mm-hmm. did you how did you find them? What what was your kind of research process for finding businesses? Well, I, it,
2: was, it was finding the right partnerships. I think you know um, uh, that again. This was when Becky was just getting started, you know, and and she had one retailer in, in town, Pete Stern at Connoisseur's of Wines, and didn't really have an importer, and so Pete knew us and put us together. And, and there was nobody else that was, you know, this was it's hard to believe now, but nobody was interested in Becky's Wines at that point, <laughs> you know, so, so um, um, because we were looking in that direction, mm-hmm. I think, it, it was, you know, they, 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 everything was evolving at that point, it was changing, mm-hmm. and, and, and so uh, uh, there was all, it was happening on the export side, on the import side, on the producer side, and so we all kind of merged, you know, kind of came, came together. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I remember there would be, uh, once, things, once we were established and other, other distributors started doing it, it was interesting because the, the salespeople from the other distributors that all liked these kind of wines, we all hung out together, <laughs> even though we were from other companies. You know, we'd have picnics and everybody would bring their wines and things like that. So it was, it, was a, it was a cultural thing almost. You know, it was like all this, this discovery that was happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was, uh, it was an exciting time. It was fun
1: you mentioned kind of the explosion of food and new new kinds of food and restaurants happening as, as simultaneously and, and and contributing tell me about the consumer response were, were consumers excited ready for European wines how much did you have did you find yourself doing education or outreach in that way
2: yeah I mean it was really it was really doing something new you know and and um, but again, I think it's, it was, it's a right time, right place sort of thing. All of a sudden when you have, this, this, you know, like Spiaggia was a famous high mm-hmm. upper-end restaurant in Chicago and that opened about that time and then all of a sudden you're seeing a, a type of Italian dining It was totally different. For instance, uh, you know, obviously Chicago was very Italian-American, you know, so spaghetti and meatballs and things like that. And then all of a sudden this high-end, you know, formal Italian restaurant opens with this and they wanted a wine list in line with their their foods and 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 so there were and then you know there were several French restaurants started to open that were doing not just the old style heavy French food but the Nouvelle cuisine at the time Mm -hmm. and and things like that so it made for a uh, uh, you know it wasn't just us it was like the whole market was evolving mm-hmm. and everybody was interested in this, these types of things started to connect, hang out, socialize, and things mm-hmm. like that. And the retailers then started to react too, you know, you had younger buyers coming in. Mm-hmm. For the retailers, there was a famous wine store in Chicago years ago called, called Sam's, and uh, it was in this just totally decrepit building in this terrible neighborhood, and you had to go down in the basement to get to the wine. And there was a father-son team, Leo and Howard, Howard Silverman, and they literally drove that market. You know, they made it happen, and they turned this this small store into this multi-million-dollar operation. And it was focused on these types of wines, not not the big, not, you know, not Gallo and things like that. There weren't that many brands in those days, but there was the difference, and that, that. So again, you know, I think it's, it becomes a cultural thing. It was probably something. There was something about uh, the type of food people became interested in, and cooking. You know, people always go back to go to Julia Child, and the ripple effect of their show over the years, and those things probably just all came together at that point. And so, the, I mean, it's commonplace now. I mean, this is it's everywhere. You can go to this to a small city, and there's lovely restaurants mm-hmm. with the state wines and natural wine bars, <laughs> and things like that. But uh, it wasn't like that then. It was really limited to the big cities. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned that you had the company for about twenty years. Tell me, mm-hmm. about, the, tell me about the growth of the company and, and what it looked like at the end versus the beginning.
2: Well, in, in the beginning, it was just me and another and Sam Lovett, That was it. I mean, we we're doing the warehouse, we we're loading the wines, unloading the containers, you know, mm-hmm. delivering the wines, doing the whole bit. Uh, by the time we sold, we had about a dozen salespeople. And, and, and we're, uh, not, we weren't only selling in Chicago, we were selling to distributors in other markets around the area. So we would import burgundy and sell it to a you know, distributor in Wisconsin and everything. So we were like mm-hmm. an importer uh, and a distributor at the same time. But we, it grew. To, I mean, at the end when we sold it, um, we were doing, we, you know, so we went to zero to about $15 million a year.
1: So you mentioned your next step was going to Italy. At that point, at at this point, you don't really have any making experience. You've you've...
2: well, I've been going. I've been been spending harvests. You -hmm. know, I would try to go to harvest every year, Mm -hmm. and and I've been to France and Italy many times. Um, I mean, that was kind of the concentration at that point, and we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, for instance, I would go. Christopher Canon lived in Bordeaux, and Becky lived in Burgundy, so I would go spend time with them and they all had young people working for them too and they would take us around mm-hmm. and we then and, and, you know just hang out with the producers and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and actually work some harvest and things like that. It was, very, it was very relaxed you know it was not quite as formal as it is now and um, you know they just had a you know it was, it, was a, it was a great experience to be able to do that and the company grew I think because of, a, of, of passion and we, and, and we attracted people that shared that passion mm-hmm. and, and, and on it went, you
1: know. When you sold and, and went to Italy, was your intention to start making wine or were you just going to exp- explore more of Italy's wine country?
2: No, no. I, I, I don't know how many times I've been to Italy at that point, but it was quite a few. I was definitely going to learn production. And why, why was that? Uh, I, I felt, I, well, I wanted to make that, you know, it's like most people that are, you hang around long enough, you want to make it, I guess, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the opportunity, because I had, you know, I had a great advantage because I had people that I'd known mm-hmm. for years at this point, so it was like, hey, can I come work a harvest, can I do this, and and then I would trade for a bit of marketing and English translation <laughs> and things like that, you know, so it was, uh, uh, and then, and then, you um, then the opportunity came back, you know. To cause it was kind of limiting there. Uh, uh, if you don't inherit something, you know, vineyard, it's very difficult to obtain one, uh, and, and um, finance one is almost impossible in Europe. So we, uh, went, you know, like everything else, you're around something for a long time. You know a lot of people. Well, the, when when uh, uh, Chateau Benoit was purchased, they were looking to make a change. It hadn't been going well. Somebody reached out to me and said, "Are you interested?" In, mm-hmm came over in and it looked, and, I, and I'd always loved Oregon. I mean, that was, I mean, I don't know if I would have done it at that point in California, but I, come back to Oregon was, was an easy choice to make. I mean, obviously, you know, I've had a, a long love affair with Burgundy, you know, <laughs> being trained by Becky, so um, Oregon always says, even though we don't make
1: Pinot Noir now, uh, I still drink it. <laughs> <laughs> So, your first time, before we get back to Oregon, your first time really in the production process and really kind of learning it. Tell me about what appealed to you about it and what made you want to keep doing wine production.
2: Well, you know, at that point I was probably starting late, most people would start started earlier in, in their lives, but I, I you know, I, I, it's always to me, and this is more of what I do now and focus on is 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 the vineyard itself. It's, it's that the vineyard always attracted me, mm-hmm. and and to be around the vineyard itself is the the real magnet that took me down that path. And that's I guess that's not surprising that now that um, that you know led into biodynamics. Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. like that. So with Animie, then the opportunity to come back into Oregon and, and make that kind of Chateau Benoit to Animie change. Tell me about the situation that you, you came into, you found yourself in when you were hired, and, and what was your first? What was the first step you had to do or the first first year on the job like?
2: Well, I guess, I guess the whole idea attracts me because that's the third time I've done a <laughs> transformation uh, of, uh, of, of a winery that was kind of uh, wallowing. I, so I guess I like that challenge, that's for sure. Uh, um, It it presents real opportunities, you know, if 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 a place is having issues and and uh, you can go in and turn them around. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting process, and I find that challenge very. The the hard part with wine is that you're always working with old inventory when you start that process, you know. So you you may have three years in 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 Cabernet; it could be longer. of wine that that you didn't have anything to do with, mm-hmm. that you still have to sell. So that first few years is kind of miserable, you know. But that's it comes with the thing, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's like why, that's why I think it's hard for a winemaker to leave. How do you leave wines that you've started but haven't finished? That's that's a very hard hard thing to do to leave them leave them behind. So, um, but I guess you can always see the. The light at the end of the tunnel, and 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 you, st- you immediately start making progress, and and, and you, you have to be patient. If you're going to do this, you're going to be in agriculture. Nothing happens fast. So, um, it, would it be great just to start something from scratch? Yeah, that's that's that would be really interesting too. Uh, but then it takes longer to grow the. got to grow the vines first. <laughs> they got to wait three years and they through it and then it's, it takes a while before they're ten and they're really making interesting wine. So um, th- there's, it's like everything else, there's a give and take you know, mm-hmm. that, you, that you have to choose.
1: Mm-hmm. So take, taking on that challenge then with, with on, on, on me, what was the, you saw the potential, what was the potential you saw and what, what did you do to kind of get, get it towards that potential?
2: Well, I mean, for, if you're gonna enter a project like this, you, you have to first make sure that the financial base is there mm-hmm. and the commitment to, to grow that. Uh, at that time, the, uh, Dr. Pamplin, the owner of Annamie, he had a uh, property on Chehalin Mountain, besides the, 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 where the estate winery is, mm. Annamie on Mineral Springs Road, and, and he wanted to develop that. And it was, it's a beautiful piece of land. And so that was a real attraction to me, to come in and, and be able to develop new vineyards on Chehalin Mountain. Uh, obviously he had the resources to be able to do that, and he already owned the land, and it was pretty much a, uh, a blank slate at the time they still had the Benoit label was still there. the first anime labels were just starting to to come out so um yeah, I think that you know. That, so you, the problem is, yes, you have to deal with the old wine, but then to go into that creative process and then and develop new vineyard and, and, and bring in new winemaking team and, and assemble a new concept to move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see progress. It's a, maybe harder for the consumer to see that right away, <laughs> but you're seeing it uh, uh, relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that balances off the old inventory issues. Depends how much old inventory there is. <laughs>
1: Uh, So you mentioned kind of an offer you can't refuse to to leave Mm -hmm. Oregon. Tell me about that, how that came to be, and and the next step for you.
2: Well, again, again, you know, there was, uh, you know people, and people know you, and um, Cornerstone Sellers, um, they were transitioning and and really wanted to go on to uh, the next level. They were very small at that point. And um, you know they, the Napa, I get you know Napa has a certain appeal. Uh, I've been there many, many times and worked with you know Spotswood and Schaefer and, and, and those wineries as a as a distributor. So um, I guess I just saw uh, here's another challenge, another step to take, mm-hmm. and the kind of complete, you know, so Pinot Noir, Cabernet, i worked with them, and, and before that with Nebbiolo, so kind of the, the holy grail of grapes that I like. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, Napa is uh, a fluent place, so mm-hmm. it, it, it was, it, again, so it was a, a challenge and a, an experience. And uh, I guess that's going through those things is probably what led me back to Troon, mm-hmm. is trying to avoid. Uh, uh, Get into a a more open, creative type situation. You know, in Napa, you got to make cab. In Applegate, you can pretty much make whatever you want.
1: Tell me about the the again with a kind of the what what did you what did you come into at at Cornerstone? What did you see, and what was the potential that you saw there? What what was the goal they were trying to reach, and how did you see getting there?
2: Well, they they had uh, the. uh, they needed new contracts on Hull Mountain, which was their specialty. So um, you know, I had experience in developing that, and uh, they just uh, uh, you know hired a superstar winemaker, Celia Welch. And um, again, it was a level of commitment. They 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 had kind of been around for a long time, and, and had a decent reputation, but very small, and you know. Napa, I mean, there's a lot of lot of big name Cabernet there. So to stand out, you have, you have to take it out to, to a different level. Mm-hmm. So again, so that was that. It's that challenge to be able to do that. I, I think in the end, I found Cabernet not as interesting as I'd hoped. And um, I think that's partially because we were buying fruit, mm-hmm. even though we had cooperative growers. I think for me, t- to to control the vineyard. Uh, for at least the kind of wine that I want to do, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, is essential. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's basically what I spend most of my time on, is, is vineyard and farming decisions. And
1: like so I'm curious, at, at this point in the process, when you when you came into production, you started doing production, uh, you've, been, you've been in a few different spots, you're doing vineyard work, you're doing production work, what's your... What would you describe as your sort of philosophy at this point, winemaking vineyard philosophy, at the time when you're, making, you're an enemy or you're in, you're in Napa, um, and at what point does what you're doing now start to become more appealing? The, the, the biodynamics, the, the, the vineyard, the whole aspect, what, what point does that start to become something you want to do? Well, I, I got to see people farm in a lot of different ways, and, and,
2: and it, over time, you start to connect the way they're farming with the wines that you like. And and, and I think it was just that process of, of you know, it's, it's, it's building that database in your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, this connects with this, this connects with this. Well, how, why do I like this wine all the time? Well, so so there were, I, I would say my biggest inspiration was Michelle Lafarge and Volnay, as far as moving and opening my mind to the, the potential of biodynamics. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the thing about biodynamics is, is when you first hear about it, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, and, and, then, and then you keep picking up, you know, say, this one's great, and you look at it, and it's biodynamic, and then, you know, after, after enough time, you say, okay, I gotta look into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then you find out, you know, you find out there's so much different, uh, um, doing it is much better, different than reading about it. And, and I think the, the sometimes the writers focus on the more, they like to focus on the more esoteric aspects of biodynamics because it's better ink, you know, it looks looks better in the, in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but in in our practice, it's it's, it's uh, a more practical application, is like sure. that we do it. and we've uh, tried to apply more science to it. So it was the reason I, I went down this path is is simply because you would taste wines and say, "This wine's great. I love this wine." Why, mm-hmm. And then going to the producer and, and, and then you start to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually you, you kind of, I guess, everyone patches together their own philosophy. Um, uh, mine would be focused on is that, you know, it's all about healthy plants. If you have a healthy plant and a natural system that's operating, so a natural system in the soil, That uh, uh, makes the 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 natural system of the plant work Mm -hmm. as it's designed to. um, That you're going to get higher quality fruit with more uh, personality and more expressiveness and and more individuality. You know that's that to me is is the key. You want to okay. There's this. There's the 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 macroclimate, the mesoclimate, the microclimate. All these things together. How do they all interact? to create a wine with this variety in this location, Mm -hmm. and why. And what I've discovered just from, in my opinion, is that the the most important thing is a healthy soil. And if you have a healthy soil, the plant will react. So most of what we do now, I say, is focused on soil health. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you're gonna meet Garrett along. Mm -hmm. Uh, Garrett has a master's in soil science from Davis, and not many wineries would <laughs> bring that in. But for us, that's that's the key. That's the key. If you, if you have a healthy soil, vines are pretty durable plants, mm-hmm. you know? That if you have a healthy soil and, and allow these natural systems to work, you're going to create a individualistic uh, uh, wine that relates to where it's
1: grown. Mm-hmm. So when you, were, when, you, when you found Troon or when Troon found you and, and, and you started to talk, was that something that they had in the, 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 that was in mind already or was that something you were bringing to the table? No,
2: well, Troon, when I came to Troon, it was, Troon, it was, it was, uh, you know, I'd kind of had enough in Napa, wanted to get back to Oregon, and, and that, the, the current owners of Troon at the time uh, wanted to sell it and they, they hadn't been able to sell it. And so they basically brought me in to kind of put things back together so they could sell it. And um, uh, we were able to do that, but also that during that period, I really realized that this was a vineyard with incredible potential. Mm-hmm. So uh, when the Whites first came, they, you know, we sat down, we went over the whole process, and and I explained to them what I thought it would take to do it, and they agreed, and they okay. said, "So we'll, you'll stay," and we're all still together. <laughs> <laughs> so so what turned it what. I, was probably going to be a temporary stop Mm -hmm. on my way back to Willamette Valley, which I assumed was the direction I was going, ended up being uh, um, really kind of the culmination of everything that I've worked for for
1: my entire professional life. Describe the, take me through a meeting like that when you're saying this is what it's going to take what was the first step or the first couple of steps you saw towards getting Troon on the path it's on now from, from where it was when you started?
2: Definitely soil. It was definitely bringing the soil back to life. Uh, it was heavily compacted. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, like I, I, it wasn't that they were terrible farmers. They were working within the, of what was considered normal at the time. And with the, with the types of soils that Troon has, it was even aggravated more. So the first thing was to bring those soils back to life. And I felt, you know, you, you, like anything else, you need a framework to do that. And um, I felt that biodynamics was that framework. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different parts of bio, about biodynamics, some of them may work, some of them may not. But uh, we don't know which those are. So, so working within this context of, 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 of that biodynamic framework, that to me was the way to bring that Soil in that vineyard back to life, hmm. because I guess the way I practice biodynamics is I see it as a, a proactive probiotic program. Everybody knows probiotics now, I like these little wall waterings, but uh, um, that's what you're doing. Most of the things that you're applying in biodynamics are fermentations, so you're taking the microbiology you generate and then inoculating mm-hmm. the soil and the plants with that. So it's a um, uh, you're not fertilizing. You're just uh, trying to develop the natural microorganisms in the soil to be able to to, to do
1: that. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you judge soil to be healthy? What 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 are you looking for when you're looking at soil health soil health well, uh, uh,
2: aggregation, of course, the textures of the soil, but mostly the, the microbiology. You want, you want a very active microbiological community and fungal community in your, in your soil. I mean, a plant, you know, the mycorrhizal fungi uh, are what actually work with the plant to take nutrition out of the soil and get it into the plant. It needs to to transform a lot of those those, those uh, uh, nutrients. Mm-hmm. For instance, you could have very often you'll test a vine and it may be low in potassium, but your soil has plenty of potassium. Why? It's because it's not it's not actually able to access that potassium, and that's what the the microbiology does is it creates a um, you know it, it creates a system that can. Change that into the form that the plant can use.
1: You'd mentioned earlier the one of the advantages to being where you are in the Applegate Valley is the the wide variety of varietals you can work with mm-hmm. and experiment with. So tell me about. Uh, as Truyn has started to develop, w- what have you added, subtracted, messed around with, and, and what are you what are you looking for when you when you plant something in, in the in the vineyard?
2: Well, one of the first things we did uh, uh, was do a serious uh, uh, soil study. So we had uh, 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 Napa Soil Technologies, a company, come up, and they had seventy something five foot deep soil pits. With, we had PhDs up to their necks and pits for uh, a week. And then they sent us a report about that thick. And so we uh, digested that information. And then climate information uh, looked at what had been doing well. For mm-hmm. instance, uh, um, in particular, uh, Barbara and Bill Steele, who owned Cowhorn at the time, um, had been so successful with, with Rhone varieties mm-hmm. that that was an uh, indicator us that that was the direction to go so was putting all those together so you know the soil types um, the 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 weather conditions Mm -hmm. and our own knowledge Mm -hmm. and then let that information take us where the vineyard wanted to go instead of uh, uh, us deciding oh we're going to plant this or that Mm -hmm. and so that's the way we ended up so we'll have uh, 19 varieties we're uh, Obviously most of them won't show up as, as varietal bottlings, they'll be part of uh, blends mm-hmm. uh, um, and if we can find Tiburon we'll have 20, so we're, but we have not been able to find that yet. Mm-hmm. So everything led us basically to the south of France. Mm-hmm. So you know you the, the Rhone, uh, Provence, Mondoc, uh, and the southwest. And so we have kind of that whole range of varieties from that area. Mm-hmm. and and now now the process is say because the vineyard had red blotch and like everywhere which a lot of vineyards did that were planted at that time Uh, so we went into a replant project so we're replanting everything so we'll have 50 acres of newly planted vines we're almost through that process now and um, So we were able to go in. I mean, the the bad part of that is it's very expensive and you you lose your production. But the good part, of course, is you can come in and then really dial down where you're going to plant what on what rootstock and then develop that process. Mm -hmm. So that's we're about uh, three fourths of the way through that that process now. And um, it's been interesting because, you know, you as you you go through it, you change your mind too, it's like all of a sudden you get to know the vineyard a little better and say, well this is a little wetter over here than we thought, mm-hmm. so we're going to switch this around, we're going to have a white grapes here and red grapes up here and things like that. So it's an evolutionary process, but that's that's good, I mean that's good because so, the amount of time, effort and expertise we're applying to it is is, um, is, a, is, a, is a luxury mm-hmm. actually that you don't often get. And the ability to, like obviously in Willamette Valley, there's there's a, a strong, not pressure, but a, a reason to to plant Pinot Noir because it's famous for Pinot Noir, well Applegate Valley wasn't famous for anything in particular. So we were able to go and say, okay, this is what the vineyard and this climate wants to do. So um, that's been... Uh, incredibly exciting and rewarding to do and we're you know now we're already getting we're seeing the results uh, of some of these the first plantings already and and the health of these new young vines and how they they like it we're there mm-hmm.
1: right. when it comes to the vineyard you mentioned 50 acres of uh, vineyard uh, tell me about your your from your own perspective understanding a vineyard of that size how do you how, do, how long does it take you to get to know the vineyard and to, and to get the feel for what should be what you should be doing where and what needs to be where and at what point do you feel comfortable with being your vineyard
2: well um you you sometimes wonder how well you can get to know a vineyard in one generation uh you know because if you're making a, a natural wine you probably you're only really making that wine once in your life because every year it's mm-hmm. slightly Slightly different, and there's different things. So, uh, you know, that's, I guess that goes back to Europe. I would see these people where it's been three, four generations, and uh, they grew up in the vineyard, and everything. And maybe that's what it takes to actually deeply know a vineyard. Uh, Our advantage now, of course, is we have so much more science available to us, Mm -hmm. and, and we're able to. We're unusual, I think. People don't think of biodynamics and science going together, but we're uh, we're incredibly involved in science in the science of what we're doing. work with Oregon State mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Linfield, actually Linfield too. And um, so, so it, it's it's that every year you learn more, you know, and and. Uh, the problem with the replant, of course, is just as soon as we get to know one of the older blocks, we tear it up and <laughs> start over again. So, so that, that, that's that. But, but when you start from scratch like this and then plant and you, 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 you see it, it's three years before you even get fruit. And, you know, you, so you get to know the plant and how it's mm-hmm. doing uh, uh, in, a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Yeah, every year I think we improve as we get to know the soil. Better also, and just you know, learning where we need to put a, a, a drain or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a it's a it's an ongoing process because agriculture is so complicated that um, you know every year you're going to find something else. And now climate is kind of a toss-up too. We don't know exactly where that's going to go. I mean, traditionally for us, spring frosts were the big problem, mm-hmm. and now there are much less spring frost problems, but there's no more fall frost problems. So, you know, it's an ongoing process. I don't know if you ever, you know, it's like so many things in agriculture, in a process. I don't know if you reach an end. You know, I, you know, you just pass the baton. You know,
1: it's like Try to keep your head above water as long as you can. Right, right, right. Yeah. So at this point, with uh, with the vineyard in the shape that it's in, in terms of you're you're working at the soil, you're also doing a lot of replanting. How are you gauging progress right now?
2: Well, I, I guess it's, it, we're looking at it in, in two ways. First of all. Uh, you know we didn't take out all the vines at once we've been taking about ten acres a year and and so that means we've been able to farm some of these disease blocks and and actually watch them come back in and in, into a much not i wouldn't say healthy but much healthier than than they were and you know that there's a basic i mean we, like anybody else we're looking at the petioles and and the, the nutrition in the vine and um the, the, looking at uh, pressure bombs for water stress and, and so you see you see those things start to move mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden the vine isn't as stressed and uh, it, it's 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 taking in more nutrients and and then of course the final thing is the chemistry of the the must when it comes in mm-hmm. and we've seen just tremendous uh, improvements for instance um, when I first came there, we had Yans uh, uh, in the uh, seventy range with some wines, which is not a really good thing for natural ferments. <laughs> you know, you know that's. A, and now, and now, and then, even in, and some of the disease blocks, we've been able to get them over two hundred, mm-hmm. with no change except the farming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you, you see, you see it anyway. You see it in, in the, in, in, in the plant. Just in the look of the plant, but also in the actual nutritional when you take the, the petioles and then um, in in the must itself mm-hmm. for the ferments, mm-hmm. and that convinced me more than anything about biodynamics. So, for instance, you know, now we also were doing going down the regenerative organic path, and we were mm-hmm. the first in, in Oregon to be certified for that, and and. Um, their program is a little is a little different you know they, like USDA organic you know they're basically telling you what you can't do mm-hmm. and then biodynamics is this more proactive uh, probiotic program regenerative organic gets down you actually have to show improvement in soil health so you're, you're taking soil samples and showing uh, improved mm-hmm. carbon sequestration and improved organic uh, ma- you know, matter in the soils and um, they add to that the human pillar, as they call it. So you have to show that you're properly paying people and taking care of them mm-hmm. and things like that. So putting them all together, I think it makes a, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting process to go through the certifications because they're different. <laughs> so we have all three. So it's actually six because you get certified both in the winery and the vineyard. They're two certain, different certifications. It's
1: amazing. Amazing. Yeah.
2: But again, you know, it's it's good to have frameworks. I think this is why I would encourage anyone to get certified, is is you you uh, uh, it gives you the structure that mm-hmm. you're working within that then you can measure your progress. And, and there, the, I think the, the the part that's always left about left out about biodynamics, is that you're yes you're improving your soil, you're improving your plant health, all all of the things, but it also changes the people doing it. And, and, and it, help, it really helps, the whole certification goal brings the team together, changes the way people think, and, and everyone together feels a sense of achievement. Mm-hmm. So it, it changes not only the health of your vineyard, but the culture of your company.
1: It's a really interesting point. I don't think I've heard, ever heard it put quite that way before, but that's really interesting. Um, tell me about the. Uh, you mentioned you, you, you took over a vineyard that was planted fifty years ago, uh, and a name that's been around that long, and it's been through a lot of changes. Uh, I'm curious from the from the business side of things. You had a, you had a, a little bit of a climb to do, uh, getting getting true yeah. back where you wanted it to mm-hmm. be. Tell me how that's gone.
2: Well, I mean, trim was you know it was basically kind of an Oregon brand, uh, uh, so it was harder in Oregon than 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 uh, other states. I mean, you know, a lot of states we went into, they'd never heard of Trim before. So so it was kind of going in with a clean slate. And of course, we didn't try to go out of state right away. I wanted to wait until we got wines up to a certain level and had a more consistent portfolio. So now we're, you know, we're in 17 states and three Canadian provinces and I think we'll be in the UK this year. And uh, for us, it's about maximum velocity, so I think we may stop at that point. But, um, So in Oregon, it was difficult uh, to to, uh, explain to people that it was a new, uh, whole new concept. Mm -hmm. So um, really what we did is we waited until um, we had the wines we wanted, and then we changed the labels pretty dramatically, the packaging. So kept the old package for a little while, and then immediately loved. So that's what you see up on the the wall behind you there, is Mm -hmm. that new packaging, which is based on the biodynamic preparations. Mm Mm-hmm. Things like that you know um the there's a interesting uh with with uh oh, first first of all there was the recession and then there's covid it made it an easy time to get rid of wine people wouldn't even notice it so if I had to get rid of wine at a, at a, at a, that I didn't like at a, at a time where you could not notice it there was a good time to do it <laughs>
1: Oh, uh, you mentioned something earlier about, uh, obviously that one of the biggest differences between the Lambe Valley and, and the southern part of the state is having a flagship varietal for, versus not. Um, with that freedom, tell me about the challenge of, of selling, you mentioned now 19 or, or 20 varietals that you're planting and obviously not all single varietal wines, but I'm curious about the challenges of selling wine. We don't, we don't have a flagship grape to get behind. What, what, how, how, what are the advantages to it and what are, what are the challenges from that?
2: Well it is more complex, that's for sure. Uh, you know obviously the light goes on and people say pe we army say well, I' that's Valley that's, that's an advantage. But it's also a disadvantage for them because I forget how many hundred there are wineries in Willamette Valley now, but it's a lot.
1: 500, <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah.
2: So that's, that's that are basically with the same portfolio. So actually in Oregon, it's, it's we found it to be a benefit to walk in and say we're selling Oregon Syrah. <laughs> in Oregon, you know, the restaurants are like, oh great, you know, I want to talk to you. I don't know if they would have talked to us, if we walked in with a, with another Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. So that's been an advantage for us. And then I, I, when we've gone out in other markets, our, like our distributors in other markets, they're almost all uh, f- European oriented, so they're already kind of ha- more highly trained staff that is more dialed in to selling these types of wines already, mm-hmm. and that's the advantage of being a small winery is you don't have to, have to don't have to do mass market you know, so uh, you know we'll we'll eventually get back up to about ten thousand cases that's what the property can can handle that we can handle so you know ten thousand cases three hundred million Americans I think I can find.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the one thing about COVID has been there's been a, a, a big increase, I think, in, in concerns about health. And so, um, being biodynamic and organic, I think, is an advantage in, 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 that, in that situation. And then across the country, there's been a, a, just an explosion of distributors that specialize in these types of wines, wine bars, restaurants, sommeliers that want these kind of things. So it's like there's this sub-market, <laughs> the big market. And, and, and um, that's, where we, that's where we play, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 so, so for us, like with our distributors, we're just in with other wineries just like us. Their whole book looks like our wine. So the, the salespeople are ready to go and they're obviously going to go to accounts that want to do that, mm-hmm. you know, sell those kind of wines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned uh, 10,000 cases as a kind of a goal to get back to. What what else is in the future for true and Obviously, a lot of a lot of change rapidly for you. What's what's in, down the road? Cider. Cool. Uh, we'll
2: certainly have about 300 uh, uh, French cider apple trees. I think we're up to 24 clones now. <laughs> <laughs> And, and uh, so uh, apples are even worse than, than than grapes. It takes almost five years before you get a good solid crop. So yeah, we're not, I don't know. We're too smart in that way. But uh, so that, that's a bit of our general, you know, part of biodynamics is biodiversity. Mm-hmm. So on our farm we have a uh, uh, the apple trees now. We do want to be up to about three hundred. Um, we have hay that we grow to use in our compost and for feeding livestock. Uh, We're launching a two acre, we call it a garden, but uh, two acres is a pretty big garden, (laughs) vegetable garden. So we'll have our own farm stand and uh, uh, we're working with local chefs to supply biodynamic vegetables for their menu. We have uh, chicken, sheep, uh, lots of eggs, <laughs> and uh, we have al- almost fifty chickens. So chickens, that's a lot of eggs, and uh, and two Grand Pyrenees uh, guard dogs because we are in the mountains,
1: and there are mountain lions, mm-hmm. and coyotes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, from your perspective, you've 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 worn a lot of hats in the industry, uh, from from importer distributor to marketing and sales and viticulture and wine making. Uh, tell me about. Sort of looking back, um, are there standout moments for you or standout um, either times for you or events for you that you you look back on with with a bigger fondness or times in your life when you were doing a certain task that you enjoyed the most?
2: Well, uh, wine is a people, relationship, business. So I I would have to say that the things that stand out uh, in my memory over the years are uh, Directly connected to people as much as uh, vines and things like that. Uh, my, my mini business with Becky Wasserman and Christopher Kannon, Uh I was with Christopher when he was building his Spanish portfolio and the ability to do that and to go to Spain. Uh, to what I think of, uh, uh, you know, the Novaks at Spotswood and, 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 and knowing that at the beginning, you know, the Shafers, things like that uh, uh Sterling's at Iron Horse and uh, when they were these were all new just new ideas and t- to share those experiences with them over the years uh, to go to spend time with Michelle Lafarge in, a, in, a, in, a, in the vineyard uh, Angelo Gaia uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, and, you know Andrea Costanti and Brunello all these things are the things that those are the things that come back to you and that that where you end up, I think is the sum total of all those interactions and experiences and obviously many 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 hours of talking about it over bottles of wine <laughs> 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 many hours <Yes. laughs> so so uh, i mean and so it, it's that's the whole thing about wine i think that's so uh compelling is that it's a it's this community mm-hmm. you know um uh, and 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 those interactions and people willing to help you. I mean, if there's anything that stands out about Oregon in particular is how how uh, how tight the community is and everybody's willing to help everyone else. And and that's that's a great great experience. You know, I, it's really strong here. But I would say I, even in Napa, there was that. You know, your breast broke down, and your neighbor would help you. It's not as cutthroat as people might might think but mm-hmm. it's that I, I, I suppose that's what took me down the, the path to begin with is you start to, you know connecting with people and that interaction and that and it grows and gets deeper and deeper mm-hmm.
1: you talked a bit about this earlier about that some of the changes in, in the national and international wine scene since you've been aware of it but I'm curious as you as you sort of look back to the beginning what are the biggest differences uh, on a national or global wine scale that you that you've seen what what are the biggest changes in, in the industry that you've seen and what do you see coming next Well I suppose
2: the the, the in in the, my early days in the in the industry it was just so new you know if you brought in a domain burgundy people were like what's that you know and it was like it was like there is exciting you know and all of a sudden you had what you've got an estate Italian wine you know you know, so there was that general, uh, 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 it was just looser, more open, you know. And, and now, uh, it, I think it'd be, it's pretty hard to come up with a totally new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I get a kick out of orange wines. No, we make a couple. And um, now it's like normal. I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's, there's cooperatives in Europe making grocery store amounts of orange wine. You know, and it's a category on wine lists. So uh, I don't know where you go from there. I think it's, uh, um, uh, it, it'll finally get down to, to I think, responsible farming, mm-hmm. and then really trying to make an individualistic wine, because nobody can duplicate a, a truly expressive wine in one place. That's the that's one thing. That's the, you know, that's, I think that that'll be the key for the individual producer, is to find that your expression, not the market expression. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to, to go beyond the safe style mm-hmm. and make what you believe in. If you make what you believe in I
1: think you'll find your market. Mm-hmm. You when I mean. believe in something. <laughs> I def- definitely a, a common thing in the industry is believing, believing in something very strongly. Yeah. Um, on a more Oregon-centric uh, scale then, uh, I'm curious, kind of the same question, what are the changes you've seen in Oregon from your kind of initial awareness of it to, to being a part of it, uh, and what does its future look like?
2: Well, you know, I mean, obviously from the, from the early 80s when I first came here to now, it's total transformation. Uh, uh, I, the biggest change now is, I mean, it wasn't so many years ago that the giant Oregon brands were 100,000 cases. you know, And now, obviously, that's been blown away <laughs> quite a bit. And I, I think you're going to continue to see that growth of that kind of company. I think that's probably good in the long run, because it, it helps establish Brand Oregon, mm-hmm. gets the name out, introduces it to more people, and they'll come down to the, so a certain percentage of them will come down to the smaller producers. Mm-hmm. Um, the level of uh, professionalism, I mean, the, the, the level of farming Professionalism here now is just extraordinary, it's uh, on par with anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and, and in fact, in a lot of ways, I think it's a, a leader. Um, the way biodynamics I think is practiced in, in Oregon is because or it, it's a real practical type of biodynamics. It's not so tied to the spiritual side of it, and um, it's interesting when you and because you, obviously there's a community of the biodynamic producers. And uh, everybody is focused on I, I'm doing this because it's going to make my soul healthy. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. So it's and 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 it's not like I, the, you know in the biodynamics everybody talks about the calendar all the time and doing it by the moon. And, and I, I we try to do that, but we see that more as trying to get that little extra edge of quality. Uh, I don't think that if you don't follow it exactly, it's going to you're also going to make. Bad wine, you know, uh, and and then also sometimes you have to. I mean, the, the classic example is, you know, you're you're getting ready to pick, and and uh, uh, tomorrow is, is a really bad day, but the day after it's going to rain six inches. Any possible gain you can get by picking on, 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 a, on a, a better day will be negated by the rain. So you just have to be really practical about the how you pursue it and what you do.
1: I'm curious. Before I I one last question for you, but before we get to that, I'm curious about since you talk about dynamics and how much it's how much it's much more mainstream now than 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 even just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if people are still skeptical of it when you go to market with it or when you have people in your tasting room. Well,
2: there's there's a there's there's certain people out there that hate it. I mean, they're like relatively they're ready to attack you, you know. Everything and that one of the great pleasures of social media now is (laughs) is that they can come out and go after you, but you know, I don't worry about it too much. You know, uh, um, uh, there's enough people that I I don't think people most people don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. I think they think it is some sort of super organics type of thing, which I suppose it is to a certain extent, but um, uh, it's like anything else, we're working within a narrow market, you know, within our market. It's very well known, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and people people seek it out, and uh, you know we want to put it on our label, uh, and and because and what's important is that other people start doing it. Mm-hmm. It's not I mean our hundred acre farm isn't going to change the world, you know, but if we can get a thousand more acres to do it because they like our wines, we think they see see the, the potential. I think that to me is is the power of putting certification on your label. Obviously, and also, it's it's just a way to communicate to customers that value those mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, our I think our goal is really we want other people to do it. That's why I mean, if anybody asks a biodynamic producer for help, they're like all over it. You know, yeah, sure, yeah. They, you know, it's not like oh no no, that's gonna you know you're gonna take away my competitive edge <laughs> or advantage here. No, they want you to farm that way. They're farming that way because they it, they they think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, both for the wine quality but also for the plant.
1: And so uh, for you personally, what's next? Do you think any future plans you're looking forward to either at Troon or or in your uh, outside of Troon, uh, that you're looking well, to to?
2: well the project project's gonna outlast me <laughs> at my age. So, so uh, uh, I think you know like you know the, it's an interesting thing uh, uh, because I'm working on planting vines that people that I never met will make wine from, or never will meet, you know, I'll never, and I'll never taste those wines. But that is, that's, that's inspiring to me, mm-hmm. the, the idea that you can push things out into the future like that and touch, touch the future, at least in a small way. Mm-hmm. It makes for, uh, you know it, makes it that much more emotional. I mean, I really want these vines to last 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's our goal in the way we're planting them and the way we're farming them. And uh, so I'm obviously not going to see that out of it, but um, uh, the process of, of doing that and then that continuum of agriculture is to me personally very compelling. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. All right, that's so all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask? I don't know. Anything, anything we didn't <laughs> Anything I should say? <laughs> I feel like you have covered so much, it <laughs> <and> great. <laughs> it has been great, I have to uh, agree with that. Uh. Well, thank Thank you so much for your time Thank you. My pleasure. And we'll go ahead and let you off the
0: hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.